You're listening to Weird Distractions Podcast, a podcast where we tell you weird distracting stories of true crime, conspiracy theories, and the paranormal, in hopes that we can help you distract from everyday life, whether you're going through a breakup, trying to avoid work, or just need a distraction from COVID-19. I'm your host, Alex. And Christy. This week, we are back to true crime, and this story, once again is a doozy <laughs> aren't they all <laughs> pretty much all are but this one might top well it, it'll top the cake right now until we kind of continue on but i just hope that people have a strong stomach for this one and there will be a warning before i kind of get into it um I'm excited. So, stuff but before we dive into the story, what are you needing to distract yourself from, Christy? Um, my distraction this week is I was off last week for work, going crazy. This week I'm back to work, and then oh. I got my schedule changed three different times in the last week. So I'm just annoyed by that. So I'm distracting <laughs> from work problems. <laughs> I am actually on the same boat because I think I mentioned to you earlier, uh, earlier this week that um, I had literally planned my whole entire week to work a certain shift by Friday, and then I, which is a 12 to 8 shift, and then Tuesday I log on, everyone's like, oh no, you're working 12 to 8 today, and it's like 9 a.m. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but this sudden change in scheduling, I nearly lost my life. Like, I, <laughs> I thought I was going to have a pan not a panic attack but like a huge ass hissy fit but no it just throws off your whole day because you're like mm, i've already been working for an hour and a half to begin with <laughs> if i would have known that today was a 12 to 8 i would have slept in but i did not sleep in therefore i'm Cranky. ready to work yeah so it was also a full moon this week so it was very full moon a couple nights and i had weird interactions with people obviously over the phone but just very odd situations would come up so for example on friday i had a counseling session with a client that i've never met before and it literally lasted 20 minutes because she kept saying i've got a lot of school work i've got a lot of school work i've i'm fine my mental health is fine but i've got a lot of school work i don't think your mental health is fine <laughs> no and i was like okay well i guess i'll let you go because i don't want to bother you know Keep you from Bob, schoolwork. Keep from schoolwork. And she's like, okay, thanks, click. I was like, oh, okay. So I literally <laughs> typed in the note. I'm like, well, client appeared to be occupied by education. Therefore, I let her go. <laughs> mm, that's hilarious. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's a weird time of year. It's also snowing or was snowing today. Yeah, like I thought it was, was almost spring slash summer, not winter. Oh. Yeah. And, and then. Like, where you guys got way more snow than I did. Like, we were sapping, my family, and mom sent me a picture of what you guys had back there, and I was like, it's clear as day up here. It's sunny, and the snow has melted already. Yeah. And you yeah. guys got, like, a foot of snow. Literally. Like, I went out to my car this morning, and I was like, you've got to be shitting me right now. I wanted to wear flip-flops, first of all. Not flip-flops, but, like... Burks. Like, Burks. Well, yeah, essentially. Okay. And... I looked outside, I'm like, well, I guess that's not happening. And then I checked the temperature, I'm like, well, it can't be that bad. And I opened the door, and it was so cold. I was like, well, I guess I'm busting out my winter jacket all over again. So, I know, I had to turn the heat on today for the first time in, like, weeks. And I'm like, mm, it's a little chilly in here. What is this? And once again, for those who might not have picked up, we live in Canada. We're literally, the weather just doesn't know, it doesn't know what, what it wants. Do. It doesn't know what it wants. Mm-mm. Doesn't know what it wants, but today we are going down under. Ooh. And I apologize to anyone that was listening from Australia because we did have, I think, one listener. They're probably going to stop listening. Because <laughs> you botched that. Because I just botched that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know what? We're going down to Australia, specifically the New South Wales area. Which I've never, I've never been to Australia. Because yeah. I'm, a, I'm petrified of spiders. <laughs> and I know people, like, uh, a friend's sister 
I forget how long she stayed there, but she's like, oh, the spiders aren't even that bad. I'm like, but I have already amped myself up by watching numerous videos. Of massive spiders. Of massive spiders. Plus, we used to have a mutual friend that I think, I don't remember how long she was down there for, but she was down there. And I remember her messaging me once and she's like, yeah, I literally woke up and there was like a spider the size of my hand on my pillow beside me. It's like, well. No, no. (laughs) Nope. 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 No, thank you. Not today, Satan. (laughs) But without further ado, let's talk about some true crime, shall we? Get weird. All right. So we are talking about Catherine Knight. She was a very interesting lady. Uh, She would be the first woman to be imprisoned for life in prison without the possibility of parole in Australia like the first. So needless to say, she's got quite the story and we're just going to dive right in. So she was born uh, Catherine Mary Knight on October 24th, 1955 in Tenerfield, which is located in New South Wales, Australia. Uh, She had a twin sister named Joy and her mother's name was Barbara, um, who already had four boys in a previous marriage, uh, Patrick, Martin, Neville and Barry, plus another son with Catherine's father, Ken. And that that boy's name was Charlie. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of kids already involved, not that that matters, but um, there would actually be another brother, Shane, um, who'd be born in 1961. So right off the bat, um, the family was raised in a small town of Aberdeen. And the family was described to be kind of unconventional and dysfunctional. And the reason behind that was because Aberdeen, I think at that point in time, was, as mentioned, a very small town. It was kind of very close-knit. Everyone knew everybody. And before, I think either before, yeah, before Catherine was born, Barbara was married to another man. Um, And... Barbara was having an affair with Catherine's soon-to-be husband, Ken. Risque. She, yeah, so, and Barbara was a very interesting woman, and it's just, it's, it's, the whole situation's a little bit messy, not to be judgmental, but it's, it's a little messy. So, um, Catherine and Joy were born, and I believe then Barbara and her first husband, who she had the four other boys with, split up, um, or got divorced, however the legal term is. And then she got married to Ken. Um, Because of the situation, they actually left Aberdeen because, you know, small town didn't really take too kindly to her. Um, You know, they maybe were a little bit rude to the family, which fair enough. So they ended up moving to another town called Moree, which is M-O-R-E-E, which is about four hours north of Aberdeen. Um, and the previous sons that Barbara had would be split up between her first husband, whose name is Jack, forgot to mention Jack, um, and their aunt. Um, and actually she would have four more kids with Ken, which I believe would be Shane and maybe three others. I don't know. I, I honestly, I can't keep track. There's just too many kids at this point. I was say, what's the total count on those children? <laughs> I know. Um, so Jack, Barbara's first husband, would pass away in 1959, in which the two sons of him and Barbara would come to live with their mother, Ken, their children, and Catherine. Um, so Ken, let's put the spotlight on him, he worked at a slaughterhouse and was known to be an alcoholic and kind of a douchebag. Um, he would use violence and force to rape Barbara up to 10 times a day. Apparently, um, some reports claim that Barbara was also physically abusive to Ken. Just not a good situation. Just, it was just, no. no. Um, And Barbara would often tell her daughter's intimate details of her sex life and how much she despised sex in men. Yeah, like I, for one, would never, ever, ever want to hear about... 
I, I can't parents' even, sex life. No, I, I no can't do it. No. Uh, so, anyways, later in life, Catherine would state that once uh, she complained to her mom about, um, I guess, the situation kind of came up where one of Catherine's partners at the time wanted to do something specific in the bedroom, and she wasn't comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And essentially, Barbara told her to put up with it and stop complaining. Yeah. Okie dokie. Well, <laughs> no is no. <laughs> Consent is sexy. And if someone says no, then no means no, despite what Barbara tells you. So Catherine herself would be sexually assaulted by several members of her family, which there was an emphasis that it wasn't her dad for some reason. Like in all of the articles and the documentary I watched, there's like this strong emphasis that Catherine had that like, it wasn't my dad. And it's like, okay, okay, get it. It's not your dad. Um, but a lot of people had a hard time kind of believing Catherine about this because there wasn't a whole lot of detail, just that it wasn't her dad. Um, and some speculated it was maybe her half-brothers, but once again, it was never really... A for sure thing. Yeah. So, apart from her sister, Joy, uh, Catherine was very close with her uncle, Oscar Knight, um, but unfortunately, he completed suicide in 1969, so that was obviously really challenging for Catherine. Um, but she would actually claim and still claim to this day that she thinks Oscar's ghost uh, visits her on a regular basis. So a little bit of paranormal there. That's nice. Little visits. Little visits, you know, nothing wrong with a little ghostly visit as long as it's, you know, not a poltergeist. Yep. <laughs> um, so that same year in 1969, the family moves back to Aberdeen um, because I guess the there was new tea spilling around the town and another family had some drama that people could focus on. I don't know. Um, Catherine went to high school and when she was there, she was known as a lo- uh, I almost said a lawyer. She was known as a lawyer. No, <laughs> she was known as a loner. The opposite. <laughs> That's not important at all. Okay. Important at all. Um, she was known as a loner and a bully who picked on smaller kids. So before, like, I don't know how to put this, but as much, like, she's going to do some pretty nasty stuff, and we're going to hear about it, but I will say, like, her upbringing was pretty shit, so, like, I kind of, I kind of get it. doesn't it. help her, okay. No, no, like, what brought her, it's definitely more of a nurture, nurture nature kind of situation, where I think because of her environment and because of the people that were raising her weren't supreme um she was not supreme herself that happens Uh, okay (laughs) but things would escalate um so she wasn't just like you know calling kids names and you know shoving them in lockers or whatever kids do nowadays uh she would be known to assault at least one boy in school with a weapon and was once injured by a teacher who essentially injured her because they were acting in self-defense so she was gray okay (laughs) she was not doing so hot Um, But when she wasn't raging against people, she was apparently a model student and often earned rewards for her good behavior. Um, So 50-50 good and crazy. She's she's not always a badass or a bad apple. Just sometimes. Just sometimes. Uh, Despite this, though, she would actually leave school at the age of 15. Some reports say 16, so 15 seen whatever uh without much knowledge of how to read or write which is concerning because by the age 15 yeah how to read or like what school are you going to who passed you to this point like i remember in public school which feels like a million years ago uh when we graduated from grade eight there were kids in our class that were quote-unquote placed into high school do you remember that Mm mm-hmm but they could still read and write. They just didn't really show up to class because, you know. You push you through. Just push you through. Yeah, um, English was mandatory. Exactly. So despite this, she was still able to get a job as a cutter in a clothing factory. Um, she would stay there for about a year and take her quote-unquote dream job. Can you guess what her dream job is? Working in that slaughterhouse? I don't know. <laughs> you betcha. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> So she would uh, follow her in her father's footsteps and work at a local slaughterhouse cutting up animal organs. Um, so she 
at the slaughterhouse, she was a pretty quick learner. She was good at what she did, and that actually earned her a promotion in which she got her own set of butcher's knives, which she would keep over her bed in every home she lived in. Comforting for self-defense? <laughs> exactly. It's called decor. Look it up. Special knives. Like special spoons. No. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of twinkle light from the dollar store, she's got butcher knives. <laughs> they shine in the light. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so Catherine would meet her first of many loves in 1973. His name was David Stanford Kellett. Uh, Catherine was 18 years old at the time. So young love, just imagining like blossom flowers and romantic music in the background. Um, but David was a bit troubled himself. So, That's a good mix. Yeah. Um, he previously worked with the railroad and he, bleh, he previously worked with or at or on the railroad until one of his friends was killed in front of him by accident. Rough rough uh gets more rough uh he was later uh present when a train hit a school bus which killed six kids in 1968 rough times too rough times too and just because we're super we're getting super rough about this david apparently helped rescue the injured and removed the bodies oh. we're at times three and i yeah not not a good not a good situation not good for your mental health. No. Uh, after this, David turned to alcohol to cope. And eventually, due to some incidents at work, um, apparently he would, like, fall asleep on the job and what have you. Um, he lost his job in Aberdeen. Uh, but this actually led him to Catherine. So he was working with the railroad, and then he found a job at the slaughterhouse in Aberdeen. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he started working there, he started spending time with Catherine's brothers, so I don't know if they, I'm assuming they all maybe worked at the slaughterhouse. Family business, might as well. Might as well. Um, in which David and Catherine started dating. And it's kind of funny because Catherine was a lot taller than David. And she was mm-hmm. kind of like this, I don't know how to put it, but she was kind of, like she stood over him a little bit. Like there's a short guy with brown hair and she's just like this really tall uh I think she had like auburn hair or something like that, like kind of red. I don't know why I'm getting so into this, but like I, I watched the documentary and you could just see them like kind of play fighting a little bit mm. and just kind of like, I don't know. It just looked weird. Kind of looked kind of, yeah, but it was kind of cute because they were like so like giggly and like, oh my gosh, I love you. Ha 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 ha. Um, but we'll get into it. <laughs> so. The two were thick as thieves, like they spent all their time together, um, with with Catherine often stepping in to help David during his drunken fights with others, often throwing some punches in when she could. So she was a ride or die. Like she she was not letting anyone mess with her man whatsoever. Oh yeah. Uh, not, like, not a shock, not a shock to anybody, but in Aberdeen, she was well known for being physically threatening to anyone who upset her. So. Stay out of the way. Yeah. Um, so Catherine married David in 1974 at her request, which, when I read that, I was like, so did she make him marry? I I don't, but, um. Apparently, on their wedding date, uh, the ca- the couple arrived at the service on her motorcycle, which is so badass, um, with a very intoxicated David at her side. Once again, he he used alcohol to cope. Um, on the wedding day. The wedding day. Um, David would report later that Catherine's mother, Barbara, good old Barbara, told him told him this on their wedding night. Um, you better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing playing up on her, which you know means cheating on her. She'll fucking kill you. That's some great wedding advice. I think if anyone came up yeah. to me like on my wedding day and was like, you know, you better watch out for him. He'll fucking kill you. I'd be like, well, why <laughs> why am I here then? Because I'm not like bye. At- this is not a two for one deal. I'm not I'm not looking to get married and die at the same time. <laughs> no thank you. No, Big old red flag. 
So Barbara wasn't far off from this advice either, because during their first night as husband and wife, David woke up to Catherine on top of him, strangling him, in which she claims her defense was he promised her they would have sex a lot that night. And they only had sex two to three times, and he fell asleep during intercourse, I guess, after round whatever. And she was not impressed. She's like, nope, mm -mm, you told me I was getting this much, and you're not performing, so I'm just going to choke you out. Yeah, I'd be like, um, I'm not done. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Which, like, the guy was probably tired. Like, I'm sorry, but if you're drinking all day, getting married, like, that just sounds exhausting. Like, exhausting. But... Uh, the violence would not stop there, though. On one occasion, a heavily pregnant Catherine burned all of David's clothing and shoes be before hitting him across the back of the head with a frying, plant, frying, plan, fry, frying pan, um, simply because he had arrived home late from a darts competition. He actually made it to finals. And so he comes home, he's like super, super stoked, super pumped. He's like, hey, babe, made it to finals, yada, yada. And then she comes at him like, well, I burned all your shoes and your shit, and you better, well, bam. <laughs> yeah, you better run because I'm going to hit you. How dare you come home late? Um, so during this event, David fled for his life, of course, before collapsing in his neighbor's house, and he was later treated for a severely fractured skull. So she, she, whacked, town. she whacked him. Like, this wasn't like a boop. boop. This was a boop. <laughs> <laughs> um, so police at this time wanted to charge Catherine, but she changed her behavior to, to you know, kind of suck up to David, getting him to drop the charges. Mm. Yeah, so in May 1976, um, shortly after the birth of their first child, Melissa Ann, David left Catherine for another woman and moved to Queensland, um, essentially because he wasn't able to keep up with Catherine's abuse. Like, And not that, not that keeping up is something you should do but essentially he just like could not take it anymore he was at his breaking point mm -hmm. um so he leaves and as you're probably guessing Catherine was not happy about it she, no. was, she was not a happy camper she did not want I david to leave. feel bad for this child already oh yeah um so Catherine was seen pushing babe and melissa in a baby carriage down the main street violently throwing the baby carriage from side to side she was admitted to a hospital where she was diagnosed with postpartum depression and spent several weeks recovering. Where'd the kid go? I, I and that's the thing. I never, I never found out where the kid was. Because it's not if it goes to Barbara. Oh, oh God, no! Could you imagine? Yeah. No, thank you. So, when Catherine returned home, she took two-month-old Melissa to a nearby railroad track and left her on the tracks with a train scheduled to come by shortly. So, yeah. Um, it died. Nope. It, okay, good. Catherine then fled the railroad scene and stole an axe from someone, uh, then went to town and threatened to kill several people waving the axe around. So she literally, like, leaves her baby at the railroad tracks, goes into town, finds an axe off someone, which... Random. Random. And then starts going around town like, I'm gonna kill everybody with a wax raven. Like, you're making a scene, ma'am. If like it... Come on, Karen. No. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Catherine. Um, a man known in the district as quote unquote old Ted, uh, who was nearby the railroad tracks, found and rescued Melissa by all accounts only minutes before the train passed. So she nearly died. Well, good thing she was saved. Oh, thank you. Thank goodness for old Ted. You're here for old Ted. Uh, Catherine was arrested again and again, taken to the same hospital she recently received treatment from, but signed herself out the following day, reporting that she was quote-unquote recovered. And I say quote-unquote because clearly not, or else we wouldn't be talking about her at this length. Um, <laughs> not long after this train wreck... Uh, Catherine became violent again. Uh, Catherine slashed the, the face of a random woman with one of her butcher knives and demanded the woman drive her to Queensland to find David. The woman escaped after they stopped at a service station, but by the time police had arrived, Catherine had taken a young boy hostage and was threatening him with a knife. Luckily, Catherine was disarmed when police attacked her with brooms. 
With what? With brooms. Oh, brooms. I was like, what? <laughs> they literally... I you just, just carry brooms around and just beat people with them. <laughs> literally beside my note, I put LOL in big caps. What? <laughs> <laughs> like, this is... This, what year is this? This is like the 1970s, and they're attacking people with brooms? I don't... Yeah, they, instead of shotguns, they stock brooms in the police cars now. Just well, the... Oh my gosh, I don't... You're dirty. Come here. I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> Don't understand. Um, and then she was admitted back to the psychiatric hospital, of course. So um, of course. Catherine told the nurses at the psych hospital that she intended to kill the mechanic. Okay, listen to this. She intended to kill the mechanic at the service station because he had repaired David's car, which had allowed him to leave. And then she was going to kill... David and his mom. When She's she really unhappy, him. apparently. She, once again, not a happy camper. Um, so when police informed David of the incident, obviously kind of giving him a heads up, like, hey, Catherine is pissed. She wants to kill She's you. She's coming to get you. She's coming to get you, man. Like, our brooms can only do so much. We can only protect you from the, with our brooms for so long. Um... David then packed his packed his stuff, grabbed his mom, and left his new girlfriend and new child because you know, yikes, um, and moved left back with them or left them. Left them. But took his mom. But took his mom. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they moved back to Aberdeen to support Catherine. Mm-hmm. Which, like, listen, neither of us have kids. Neither of us have been in a situation where we have to co-parent or birth or have raised children. So I don't, I for one don't really understand the inner works of when you split up with someone, why do you go back just for the kids? Like I, I, I can understand different point views, but I feel like if someone, if I was David in this situation, this is where I'm coming from. If I was David in this situation, the last fucking thing I would do would be going back is go back with my mom. Like, go back alone or don't take your mom. Like, what does she have to do with it? Or stay away. And if your kid is that bad off and you want to go back for them, then these like this wasn't very long ago, like 1970s no. or something. Like, yeah. get, get sole custody of your child. That's yeah. clearly a risk. And just stay away. I don't know. If someone's listening from Australia, if you know, like, if the family court system was just not that easy or what have you, because I understand family courts are not fun and they're not always easy especially back then i think they were more maybe suited or directed toward the women keeping the kids i don't know that's true let us know send us an email educate us because i just don't understand whatsoever (sighs) anyway so Catherine would then be released from the psych hospital on august 8th 1976 into the care of david and his mother um, the three adults, along with the kids, moved to Woodbridge, uh, where she would obtain a job at another slaughterhouse. So once again, keeping the career, which is good. Another um, slaughterhouse. And another slaughterhouse. Uh, fast forward to March 1980. Catherine and David had another daughter, Natasha. So they have Melissa oh, Ann and Natasha. Had sex with her? Jesus. No. Yeah, I know. So... Ironically, after all the fighting for David that Catherine did prior, she would actually end up cheating on him and would leave him in 1984, uh, staying with her parents briefly back in Aberdeen before moving to Muswellbrook, which is essentially 15 minutes south of Aberdeen. Um, And I hope Tanner's listening is really proud that I Google maps all these places so I can give our listeners exact detail of where they're going or where the story takes place. Probably not. Anyways, <laughs> so it should be noted, though, that Catherine would claim that David was physically abusive to her. Um, however, he stated that he never raised a finger against her, not even in self-defense. I would just walk away. And he would later describe Catherine as being unpredictably violent. So once again, we don't know what went on behind closed doors. He could have been abusive, but he's claiming he claims later on that, like, in those situations, he couldn't, he didn't know when she was going to quote unquote Kill snap. Him. Yeah, yeah, essentially, you know. So 
Catherine would continue her dream job and actually get another slaughterhouse or dream career and get another slaughter, slaughterhouse job. However, she injured her back in 1985 and would actually go back, go on disability, sorry, um, which then she would qualify and live in government funding housing back in Aberdeen. So now she's not working. Um, you know, she's living in government housing. She's getting just, you know, disability payments. Mm-hmm. And she meets another David. Another David. Another David. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. She likes the name. She likes the name. Um, so David Saunders, her and him and Catherine would meet in 1986. Um, I'm referring to him as David number two. He he was a 38-year-old minor and he quickly moved in with Catherine and her daughters after a few months of courtship. Um, Catherine and David's relationship also seemed not to be so great. She would often be and become infuriated with him going out without her, often throwing or burning his belongings while he was away and would further, would kick him out repeatedly. Sorry, I can't read. Um, so essentially things with David two are kind of becoming the same as with David one. They're like, they're same story, same MO. She doesn't like when her men leave home without her. Don't cooperate. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so she would kick David to out, but not actually wanting to give up, playing that, you know, cat and mouse game of, oh, yeah, like, oh, I hate you, leave. Ten minutes later, no, come back. I want you. Um, she would actually follow him into his apartment because he actually still kept an apartment. So he, he was moved smart. in. He was smart. He moved in with her, but he kept his old apartment too. I, I don't know, just in case. <clears throat> Maybe he had a lot of shit that he didn't want to move out. I don't know. Um, but she would follow him to his apartment and beg him to come back. And this is going to be my trigger warning because this story is not for the faint of heart, especially for those who love dogs. Hmm. To prove how serious and or how dangerous she really was, Catherine slit the throat of David's two-month-old dingo pup in front of him to demonstrate what she would do to him if he ever cheated on her. Savage. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I read that and I was like, how how does a human do like i mean obviously people do awful things to humans or to humans well yeah they do awful things to humans we don't care about that people do awful things to animals all the time but like a puppy a puppy a pu- anyway so after she killed the, his dog she hit him on the back of the head with a frying pan this is her mo or what like this is her mo <laughs> She's, like, ramping it up a bit with David, too, but, I mean, damn, same thing as David one. And then, of course, he was unconscious because, you know, as one is, if they get whacked behind the back of the head with a frying pan. Yeah. She would later claim... the skull. Yeah. She would claim that she did not do this to prove a point, but because, essentially, David number two kicked her in the stomach while she was pregnant, which was never found out to be fact. Mm. Which, like, even still, like, I... I, you know, if someone whacked me in the stomach while pregnant, I don't know if I'd slit a dog's throat or, you know. Yeah. Like, I just feel like that. But, like, no. So, shockingly, David number two didn't leave. He did not leave. Instead, him and Catherine would welcome their daughter, Sarah, in June of 1988. (laughs) Okay. So, now there's three kids. There's Melissa Ann, there's Natasha with David one, and then there's... Sarah with David, too, just so we're clear. Uh, (laughs) David bought them a home in which Catherine eventually, I guess, like, paid off with a deposit she got from workers' compensation, um, which, I don't know why I put that in a note, but essentially, she owned the house eventually. Like, it was, I think it was in his name, and then she's like, nah, I'm gonna buy it out, and then bought it out. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So, as I mentioned before, Catherine kind of had a, a different... A different taste for decor, as we know, um, with her butcher knives. She decided that now that this house was technically hers, or however that worked out, she wanted to amp it up a bit to really jazz it up the way she wanted it. So 
tomorrow night. <laughs> oh no. She would decorate the rest of the house along with her butcher knives in animal skins, skulls, horns, rusty animal traps, leather jackets, old boots, machetes, rakes, and pitchforks from floor to ceiling. This sounds like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something. I, I literally wrote, like, this sounds like something out of a Rob Zombie movie. Like, this sounds like something so, like, there's hardcore. And then there's just, like, that little jip, like, that little level Extra. up of, of, like, extreme hardcore. You know? I. She went there. She went there. And you do you, boo-boo. Who's to say that decor wouldn't be amazing? I everybody <laughs> could you imagine on um oh what's that show love it or list it you walk in and you're like, like nope <laughs> exactly so unfortunately the decor uh nor the actual you know new lifestyle that her and david too had wasn't calming or stopping Catherine though from her violent ways after having a verbal argument with Dave in number two, she proceeded to hit him in the face with an iron before stabbing him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. Aggressive? Okay. Yep. Uh, David would leave the home uh, finding safety or sp- finding like a safe space in his apartment only to come back to the home to find Catherine and the scissors she stabbed him with were busy cutting up all of his clothes. <laughs> so she's escalating, but she's still like falling back to her old... She just doesn't like men. She doesn't like her partner's stuff clothes. I guess not. Burning, cutting, whatever. Like at the end of it, she's like, you know what? You're not gonna have pants for Monday. Where do it? You're going naked. I'm naked. Um, David would go on a work leave and went to hiding after all of this. Uh, essentially, like trying to run away from the whole situation. Um, Catherine, of course, went to go try and find him. But after several months, David came out of hiding because he wanted to return to see Sarah. To David's surprise, during this time, Catherine went to police and told them she was afraid of him. And the police issued an Australian version of what we call like a restraining order or a peace bond, which mm-hmm. down under, sorry, I had to, uh, down under, they call the Apprehended Violence Order or AVO. Um, mm-hmm. She told... Sarah at this time, who is I think two now, that her father was dead. And he goes back and he's like, surprise. Yeah. So and that's the thing, I don't know if David and Sarah really ever got reconnected. It's not like they don't really tell a whole lot from her kids. Because her kids are still alive, as far mm-hmm. as I know. But there's not really a heck of a lot out there about like what her kids are up to now. And I'm sure they probably would rather keep it that way, because like when lives. <laughs> but um, with David and Catherine broken up, you know, Catherine was not done dating. Like she was like, you know what? I have three kids. I've been married. I was in this relationship. Um, I still want a partner in life, which fair enough. You go girl. Um, in 1990, she would become pregnant with a former coworker from the slaughterhouse named J- John Chillingworth. She is very fertile. I must say. Very fertile. <laughs> Myrtle, let me tell you. Um, Catherine and John would give birth to a son, Eric. So, to recap, Melissa, Natasha, Sarah, and Eric. We got four. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Apparently, their relationship wasn't awesome either, and it was part that John was also an alcoholic, and their relationship shower- showed similar traits to the ones before. Catherine Shocker. and John. I know, right? Catherine and John were together for three years before she left him for a man that she was having an affair with. His name was John Price. So, oh my god, I just realized something. What? David, David, John, John. I was just going to say that. I do not know that. I didn't even pick that up. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have a drink. Yeah, David times two, John times two. Oh my gosh. All right, so... John Price, or Pricey, as he was known to close friends and family, uh, was born in April of 1955, so he was only a couple months older. older. (laughs) He was only a couple months older uh, than Catherine, and he actually was 
previously married and had three kids. So his two daughters, Rosemary and Rebecca, and one son, Jonathan. Um, his marriage ended in 1988, 1988, sorry, in which, from all accounts, like, it seemed like they ended on good terms. It just ran its course kind of thing. Um, he had a reputation of being just, like, an overall really good guy and was very likable. Like, he got along with everybody. He wasn't really known to be violent or an alcoholic or anything like that. He was just, he was just a good guy, you know? Then he meets Catherine. <laughs> And it goes downhill. And as we have already guessed, it goes down, down, down. Like, what's that one song that came out in, what, 2008? Do you know what song I'm talking about? It's like, down, 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 down. Is it a country song? No, it's a pop song. Oh. You down, down. Yeah, okay. (laughs) But instead it. No, but instead it's about the relationship and it's just going down, 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 down. I'm so toe deaf. Anyways, uh, so John was well aware of Catherine's reputation, but despite the literal fields of red flags, uh, began seeing her and having a sexual relationship with her. His kids liked Catherine, and despite the arguments, things seemed to be going great at first. Um, Fast forward to 1998, I guess Catherine and John had a conversation, and Catherine was really wanting things to be more serious. She wanted to get married. She wanted to move in. Well, she was already moved in, but she wanted to, she just wanted things to be a little bit more permanent, you know, mm-hmm. not have their lock names. Lock it down. Lock it down. You know, she wanted their names to be written in cement as, as opposed to sand. Probably and literal. Literal, literal. Um, but John was not having it. He essentially said, like, look, I'm, I'm here for a good time, not a long time. <laughs> not a long time. <laughs> <laughs> no, he he essentially said that he's only in the relationship for sex, which, you know, he's like, I'm only in this for sex, and that's it. Like, get used to it. And as we know... Let me guess, she broke down a freaking frying pan. She, well, we'll get to it. But no, she, she, does not, she does not take no for an answer, as we know. So she burned all this... Gl- no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> she videotapes all of the quote-unquote stuff that John had stolen from his job, which I'm not really exactly sure what it worked, but essentially it was something to do with, like, medical first aid kits. Like, I think it was a factory of some sorts that produced this or some kind of company. So John had taken some expired medical first aid kits and brought them home because they're going to be thrown out anyways. And, like, I, for one, am guilty. I, I take pens from work. I don't like holes. <laughs> if anyone from my organization is listening, I don't hoard them. I just take one or two when I need them. Don't tell HR. Anyways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but essentially, Catherine, so Catherine videotapes all this, sends it to his boss, and despite the fact that this was all going to the trash anyways, his boss had to fire John um because of a policy where essentially like you can't take this even though like it wasn't I don't think the boss really wanted to is more of well we kind of have to because you're caught because your wife's crazy or never yeah he like John worked at this place for 17 years and it took meeting Catherine for him to get fired bad choice choices 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 just choices after this, John kicked Catherine out of his house, um, in which she returned to her previous home, which I don't know if that was the home she had with David number two. Not that Probably. it matters. she paid it off. Well, yeah. But anyways, um, but after a few months, David rekindled the relationship with Catherine. However, this time he ref- refused her, um, or refused to allow her to move back in for a period of time at first, of course, because, you know, she swindles her way into everything. Mm-hmm. Um, to no surprise at this time, the couple began fighting frequently again to the point where friends of his actually cut ties with him because of her. So essentially they're like, yo, we cannot handle this toxic shit. We're done. Like, sorry, bud, but like, we got to go. Like, we cannot handle her. <sighs> and sh- things to get more toxic as we're about to find out. So once again, trigger warning for those who are 
easily triggered. Um, in mid to late February of 2000, Catherine stabbed John in the chest during one of their many fights. John was finally fed up and kicked her out of the house again, which after this time, she kind of moved back in or they were still kind of dating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on February 29th, specifically, he stopped at a local courthouse on his way back to on his way to work, sorry, uh, and took a restraining order or an AVO against Catherine. While he was at work, he told his coworkers that if he did not come back to work the next day, it was probably because Catherine had murdered him. Probably not a good thing to joke Which, about. Like, <laughs> it's probably going to happen. I don't know how many stories or like how many domestic violence uh, violence cases are out there where literally someone says, if I don't show up, it's because they killed me. And then police get the report and they're like, oh, I wonder who killed him. Essentially, he tells so he tells his his coworkers this, and his coworkers are like, "Dude, do not go back to your house. Like, do not, do not go." Mm-hmm. Um, but he state like he told them he had to because he was worried for his kids' safety. So like he still had his kids. I think so. I think I don't. I think it was uh, Rosemary or one of them. So it went uh, in terms of chronological. So it was like girl, boy, girl. In terms of like the oldest was a girl, middle middle child was the boy, the boy and then the youngest was his other daughter um okay. so i think the two eldest ones were living with him at the time so he was concerned obviously about them so when john did go home he found that the children had been sent to a sleepover at a friend's house and it was just Catherine there but he still decided to split and go to his neighbor's house to hang out there until about 11 p.m but while john was working on that day um, and getting a restraining order against Catherine, Catherine went out and bought some new black lingerie. She then returned home, put it on, and began parading around the home, making a video of her talking to her to like to the kids in a way that would be later described as a last will and testament. So she was just saying really weird shit to sum it up. Mm. Like she was essentially saying like, "Oh, and don't you forget, I always love you," and like. I don't know, just some weird, weird nonsense. And she was walking around in lingerie in front of her kids, which, like, I don't know. I don't know what it looks like. A part of me is like, I don't... It's inappropriate, yeah. It's inappropriate. I don't, I don't... I'm not here for it. Catherine must have went out while John was at the neighbor's, but then she would return later on when John was asleep in bed. So she came back to his place, uh, watched TV, had a shower, and then went to bed with John... Um, when she went to bed, she woke him up, they proceeded to have sex, and then he went back to sleep. The next day, co-workers were worried right away when they realized John had not yet shown up from work. Which was unlike him. His neighbor also noticed something was funny when, at 6am, his vehicle was still in the driveway. So, what do we think? Something happened! <laughs> she probably and- gunned him! Well, and so I don't know where he was working at the time, but he already had, like, a really good reputation of not missing work. So this was out of character for him. Like, he was never late. He never missed work. Like, he was a hard worker. Mm-hmm. Just things already seemed fishy. Exactly. Um, both a colleague and a neighbor tried knocking on his bedroom window with no luck. They thought, okay, well, maybe he just overslept or whatever. So they knocked on the window. Nothing. Um and then they call police, which is good because I guess while waiting for police or maybe before they call police, they found blood near the front door. Mm. Yeah. He did. <laughs> he did. So police arrived at 8 a.m. in which they broke the door down and found John's body. Catherine was, quote unquote, knocked out cold in the bedroom with evidence that she had taken a large number of pills. Back to John, he appeared to have been stabbed with a butcher knife. Uh, it appeared, based on the scene, that he m- may have been stabbed while sleeping, tried to get up and turn on the light, and then was stabbed again for a total of 37 stab wounds. 37. That's, she was letting out some anger. That's, that's overkill. Like, that is the definition of overkill. Yep. He did for he, sure. He managed to open the front door and get outside, but was more than likely dragged back inside into a hallway where he bled out. Catherine, before taking the pills, took his bank card and went to the bank and withdrew one thousand dollars. Just one, okay. Thousand. So this is where shit gets wild, like really wild. Okay. So 
when Catherine returned, probably with an abundance of shitty decor um, after her shopping spree with Dave, uh, John's money, um, she began to skin him and hung John's skin from a meat hook in the lounge, which I'm assuming is like a living room. The meat hook was part of her decor already. <laughs> yeah, the, the, meat, the meat hook was already there and it was hanging some, I don't know, some... Buy a family picture. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's good we're laughing about it because it's going to get really gross soon. Um, She then decapitated his head and other parts Mm -hmm. of his body, which she cooked and served served with baked potatoes, pumpkin, beetroot, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy. So essentially she, she cooked a meal. Um, which was served on two plates with the names of his eldest children on, like, homemade dame tags. So she had, like, a full spread of their dad. To feast on. To feast on. Um, Apparently a third meal, a third meal was found outside in the backyard in which it appeared she had tried to eat it, but then chucked it. Mm. But it tastes good, because people don't taste good. Yeah, no kidding. So John's head was still in a pot on the stove when police arrived, along with some of the vegetables. Because the pot was still warm, police were able to indicate that the cooking had taken place earlier that morning. Catherine had also cut up steak-like cuts of John's buttocks, which was found on the kitchen table. Catherine had arranged John's body, or what was left of it, with his arm draped over an empty soft bo- soft drink bottle so like an empty pop bottle um with his legs crossed oh that's difficult um police also found a blood stain note on top of a photo of john which is essentially from Catherine. and as we all remember she didn't know how to read or write so this is my attempt to read what Catherine wrote okay take a drink if you're drinking whether it's alcohol or coffee or whatever you drink. So, the note said, Time got you back, Jonathan, for wrapping my duter. You to Beck for Ross for Little John. Now play with Little John's dick, John Price. That's it? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, not legible or any sense at all. Yeah. Um, The statements about John raping one of Catherine's daughters has never been proven to be true. Mm -hmm. So, of course, um, police gather Catherine up together. She, like, kind of comes to a little bit. um, Essentially, they think she tried to, like, fake an overdose to make it look like I don't know. Anyways. Um, But, sneaky sneaky, when neighbors and onlookers would gather around the house to see what the frick was going on, excuse me, sorry, um, essentially they would note that Catherine seemed to be walking normally and, like, appeared to be pretty coherent after taking a shit ton of pills. Um, And actually, John, one of John's uh, kids, his son, was outside mm-hmm. the house and saw her and Catherine made eye contact with him and grinned at him. Like, do not tell me that that's not the mind of someone who's not well. Like, that, she's not well. I mean, we we knew she wasn't well, but yeah, she did. the mind of a psychopath. <laughs> the mind of a psychopath. Catherine initially offered to plead, uh, plead guilty to manslaughter, which was rejected, of course, because I'm sorry, but there's no, like, you just butchered a man. You're not getting manslaughter. And she was arraigned on March 2nd, 2001, um, on the charge of murdering Price, to which she pled no, not guilty. Shocker. Her trial began in October 2001. Uh, Justice Barry O'Keefe offered the jury offered the 60 jury prospects the option of being excused due to the nature of the photographic evidence, which five people actually dropped out. They're like, no, we can't handle it. Um, when the witness list was read out to the prospects, prospects, sorry, uh, several more people dropped out in which led to Catherine's attorney speaking to the judge who then adjourned the following day. The next morning, Catherine changed her plea to guilty and the jury was dismissed. So there was no need for a jury at that point. Hmm. 
So Justice O'Keefe adjourned the trial and then ordered a psychiatric overnight uh, assessment to be done to determine if Catherine understood the consequences of a guilty plea and if she was fit to make such a statement. So Catherine's legal team had planned to defend Knight by claiming she experienced amnesia and disassociation during the time of the crime, which the psychiatrist supported, but still felt that she was still fit to stand trial and understood the proceedings. Two um, of the psychiatrists concluded that Catherine suffered from borderline personality disorder, but once again was still fit to stand. Mm-hmm. And like I know in Canada, essentially being fit to stand means that you understand what's right, wrong, and kind of like court proceedings, right? So mm-hmm. they weren't the psychiatrists weren't like, no, nah, she like she has no idea what's going on, in which she probably wouldn't have been in like things wouldn't probably end up the way that they did. We'll get to that, but um, yeah, she still she still knew what was right and wrong, and she mm-hmm. she 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 knew she knew that cooking her husband was not good. Not her husband, sorry, but kicking her partner was not a good idea. Mm. <clears throat> so, um, although she changed her plea to guilty, Catherine still refused to accept responsibility for her actions. At the sentencing hearing, uh, Catherine's lawyer requested that she be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts, but that was refused. So essentially it said, no, she did the crime. She's going to have to hear about it. Mm-hmm. Which when they brought up the skinning and decapitation of John, uh, she became hysterical to the point where she actually had to be sedated in the courtroom. Which I'm like, uh, is it a show? Is it well, that's real? The thing, you know, right? So finally, the sentencing, what we're here to, what we're dying to hear. Um, On November 8th, Justice O'Keefe pointed out the nature of the crime and Catherine's lack of remorse required a severe penalty, which was life imprisonment without the possibility of parole or release. Bam. Uh, (laughs) He actually write on her papers, never to be released. Like, never. Like, mm, no way. No way in hell. Um, And as I mentioned at the top of the story, this makes the first time that um, Australia has ever imposed that ruling on a woman, ever. She never won. she fucking chopped him up and fed him to people, or tried to. That's what it took. That's what it took. (laughs) Um, Catherine would appeal this in 2006, in which she was met with a big old fat no, uh, and she actually still remains incarcerated today at the Silverwater Women's Correctional Correctional Center, which is a maximum security institution located in the Silverwater suburb of Sydney. And that, my dear weirdos, is Catherine Knight, the cannibal of Australia. <laughs> it was a good one. <laughs> it was a good one. I was really stoked for this one. For some reason, this one is... Oh. Oh, interesting. That was good, yeah. Right? Different and gruesome, but it's what we like. So, um, and the resources I used for this story was Wikipedia, Wiki. <laughs> Wiki, Wiki, uh, Murderpedia, the documentary which I found on YouTube, which is called Catherine Knight, Cannibal, Psychopath, Murder, and Wife. Um, Sounds fitting. <laughs> I listened to two, two podcasts. So uh, the first podcast was, and that's why we drink, which is episode 17, and Cult Leader, which uh, the episode's just Catherine Mary Knight. Hmm. So, Christy, can you tell these good, fine listeners where they can find us on social media and where to send their story requests and feedback? Tidbits. Yeah, you guys can uh, get this to us on our different platforms. We are on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Public, Overcast, and Pocket Casts. You can email us uh, any comments or story requests at all to weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. You can tweet us on Twitter at weirddistractI, number one. That is weirddistractI1. Or you can hit us up our Insta page, which is at weirddistractionspod. Yes, and thank you so much for everyone that has continued to listen, um, continue to provide feedback, continue to rate and review us. Definitely, if you're able to um, go on Apple Podcasts, 
give us a review, give us some stars if you'd like. You don't have to say anything super intense. You can tell us how your day was. That's fine. That's totally cool. And overall, tell us how our weird distraction distracted you from your days. Exactly. What were you getting distracted from? What? Why did you need a distraction? Because honestly, besides COVID, we want to know what what else. What else is going on? Exactly. I wonder what else is going on. Um, And for those who are keeping track, so we've just completed true crime, which means our next episode is conspiracy theory. (laughs) At this point, people are like, oh my God, just end it, which we will. Um, So thanks again for listening. And once again, you can always find a distraction in the busiest of times if one simply looks for the weird. Okay, thanks, guys. Bye. Well, hey there. I'm Melanie Peterson, the host of Mask of Sanity. Buckle up, my friends, and come on a journey with me as I take you through the cases of some of the world's most notorious killers and root for the brave men and women who brought them to justice. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and hear all about the calculated madness of some of the world's most brutal killers who hid behind the mask of sanity. Don't forget to follow Mask of Sanity on all social media to stay up to date on each week's episode. Until next time, stay safe, friends.